Good morning. Let me uh, invite you to come on in, and we'll, we're going to go ahead and get started with our um, Sunday school hour. So this morning we are continuing in the uh, part two of our study in Christology, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week, uh, Stephen Parkin uh, began our study with a look at the person of Jesus Christ, uh, specifically in the doctrines of his eternal sonship, his divinity, preexistence, and the hypostatic union. Um, so to this morning, what we're going to do is to continue that study in Christology um, by looking at the work of Christ, and specifically his work of atonement. And when we speak of the atoning work of Christ, by that we mean all that he undertook to do, which was necessary to accomplish our salvation. Um, so as I thought about approaching uh, these truths, these weighty doctrines, I was reminded of, of something that happened uh, several years ago in uh, one of my first jobs as an electrician apprentice. Um, I worked for a shop that we did a lot of uh, remodeling in older homes down in South Carolina. And one of these just ancient homes that we, we were tearing into, one of the guys on our crew found inside of a wall this uh, this coin or this medallion that was was minted in 1789, I think, at uh, George Washington's uh, inauguration. I don't know which is the second or third. I don't know these things, but um, it was a really, really impressive piece of American history. It had this beautiful patina to it, and who knows. Uh, what that could have been worth. We brought it back to the shop at lunchtime and we're just kind of, you know, all excited about and talking, you know, how we're going to split the money and what we're going to spend it on. Um, but one of the guys on the crew, his name was Rex. Uh, bless his heart, Rex was not uh, the sharpest crayon in the box. And it's okay because I said bless his heart. Um, but he decided, he, he felt like he, he could improve upon the appearance of this, of this coin. Um, he's like, you know, I, I think I might just shine this up. And we had this power uh, sander in the shop. And so Rex took this inaugural coin, uh, 1789, to the power sander. And he just buffed that thing right up, and man, it sparkled and shone. But what he didn't realize is that whatever value it had, he had completely obliterated um, by treating it uh, the way he would some common tool. And so what I learned from this is that you should not treat something which is not common as common. You ought to know, we ought to know, how to handle a treasure. The truths that we are considering together this morning are themselves not common. And the knowledge of them, the knowledge of the truth surrounding the atoning work of Christ are the greatest treasure which this world affords. They are not to be handled lightly. So within the doctrines of the atonement are mysteries which the angels themselves desired to look into. And there ought to be about us as we approach them a proper humility and reverence. So let me admonish you as I admonish myself as we open the word together, let us seek the Spirit's help to rightly value what we see in the atoning work of Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, we are before you. We confess, God, our um, absolute and utter dependence upon you um, if we are to, uh, to, to accomplish anything in growth in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, we are beholden to the working of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, um, to open our understanding. And so we pray that you would. You have said that your word will not return void to you, but that it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent out. So, Lord, we claim that promise. We look to you expectantly, hopefully, in faith, knowing that you will honor your word and that you will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I, I confess my insufficiency uh, before you and before this congregation um, to expound upon these things, but I pray that in spite of my weakness, the Lord Jesus would be glorified and exalted. We ask it in his name. Amen. So as we said previously, in looking at the atoning work of Christ, what we mean by that is everything which he undertook, the work which he did that was necessary to accomplish salvation through his virgin birth, through his life, through his death, burial, and resurrection. He was born in human flesh, the immortal, eternal, an infinite second person of the Godhead. He took on a corporeal body, and lived a perfect, sinless life so that he might stand as representative for the human race. He absorbed the just wrath of the Father as our sin substitute. He took upon him our death and gave to us his life. All of this work of atonement was to redeem, to purchase his people out of sin with the most precious price that could ever have been paid, his holy blood. Atonement, um, its meaning or its uh, sort of root uh, understanding in the scriptures means literally to, to cover. In the biblical context, atonement means to appease, to cancel a debt, to reconcile. The significance of this word is rooted in the Old Testament practice of, of animal sacrifice um, that God had instituted through Levitical worship. He had told his people that they were to take a lamb that was without blemish, without spot, and by placing their hands upon its head symbolized the transference or the imputation of their sin onto this sin bearer. It is this transference of, of guilt from the sinner to the spotless lamb, its blood poured out as an offering for the covering of the sins of God's people that is the the background uh, of our understanding of the atonement. However, all of these animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, we're told in the book of Hebrews, could not take away sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These were only signs. They were shadows of what was to come when the true Lamb of God would offer himself as the once and for all atoning sacrifice. We read again in Hebrews, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the doctrine of Christ's atonement that we consider this morning encompasses everything which he has done to accomplish the Father's purpose of redemption of buying a people out of sin 
and reconciling, reconciling them to himself. So to understand uh, the atoning work of Christ, uh, first we must look at why it was needful um, for us to appreciate Christ's atonement as the answer or the solution to a problem, we need to first look at the problem. So uh, the first aspect of the atonement we're going to look at is the need for the atonement. In the book of Romans, Paul uh, really lays out in the first three chapters what mankind's greatest need truly is. In chapters 1 through 3, he really um, pulls back the curtain and reveals um, a vivid, stark reality of the sin problem. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he writes, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. Romans 3.10, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This paints quite deliberately a very bleak and desperate picture. Paul is affirming that man, in his natural state, is born into the world under the power of sin, the curse of death, and the wrath of God. So how did this come to happen? To understand that, we have to go back to the beginning, we go back to the fall recorded for us in the book of Genesis, where in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and he made the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and he breathed his life into them, and all of this he declared to be good. But God's creation rebelled against him when Adam and Eve chose to do that which he had told them not to do. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible tells us that their eyes were opened. Um, they saw that they were naked and they saw themselves from a different perspective now, one without God at the center. They took this fruit and that action, that anti-God heart that was behind the sin became a part of them. It became their nature, their sin nature. And the result of their disobedience is that the relationship which they had enjoyed with God was now broken. Where there had been fellowship, now there was separation. Where there was life, now there would be death. Where there was favor, now there was estrangement and enmity against sin. So how this affects us, how this relates to us, as Paul reveals in Romans in chapter 5, is that Adam, as the first man, was made by God to stand as representative of the human race, and that all of his descendants are the inheritors of the guilt and the consequences of his sin. The anti-God nature that was Adam's, we are born into. And ever since the day that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, there is a gulf that is fixed between God, an impassable gulf between God and man in his natural state because of sin. In our sins, 
we are God's enemies and under his condemnation. So this, this sin problem is why the atonement was needful. All of us are born into this world under the corrupting power of sin, enslaved to it, and as such, we are by default under the righteous wrath of a holy God. So we looked at the need for the atonement. Second, I want us to look at the cause of the atonement, its origin, its, its provenance. What was the causality that brought about Jesus' work to meet the need of our sin. So contrary to what uh, a lot of kind of sentimental gospel song lyrics might have us believe, Jesus did not look down from heaven and see how bad things were on earth and on a, some compassionate impulse decide to come down and do something about it. The atonement was not a unilateral rogue operation on Jesus' Part, nor was it a reactive decision. Rather, the scriptures teach that the atonement happened because of God's eternal plan of redemption. Many scriptures speak to this. Luke chapter 22, verse 22, For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined. Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 11, the salvation, the work of Christ is according to the eternal purpose of the Father. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, before the foundations of the world were laid, in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, the atonement was determined and salvation was predestined. Jesus was commissioned by the Father with this mission, that he would lay down his life for his people, for sinners to accomplish salvation through his atoning work. Jesus affirms this in John chapter 10, verse 18, where he says, This commandment I have received from my Father. It's very important that we understand this. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he suffered, Every pain, every agony, every moment was <clears throat> for all who would ultimately believe and be saved and was according to God's plan. So the question that follows is why? Why would God sacrifice his only son to save sinners? And I must confess, as I, as I think about this and try to wrap my head around it, I just... I absolutely cannot. It's incomprehensible to me. Uh, it was about six years ago, uh, now that, that Tally and I had the, um, the biggest shock of our life, when uh, about midway through uh, her third pregnancy, we went in for a, a, a sonogram. I think that's what it's called. Is that, well, that thing where they, you know, anyway, uh, look at the baby. And, okay, all right, I got it right. I better. I work at a hospital. <laughs> and uh, I remember the, the very second that, uh, that that nurse said, okay, so I see two heads. And I was, I was just like, my, my legs went just soft underneath me. We had no idea, no pre-warning, nothing. And, uh, and I remember saying, uh, like, no, no, check again. And she's like, no, you have twins. I was like, 
No, there has to be some other explanation for two heads. I mean, it can't be twins. Um, but since that day, you know, I have, I've had the, the joy and the blessing of learning the, the unique relationship of a father with his son. Uh, with my daughters, we share a, a beautiful and re- unique relationship. Um, and I have all these different names uh, that I use to, to refer to my girls. But to my boys, I always call them son. I love to use that name, that, that term, because it, it speaks to that relationship, that bond that I share with them. And the most beautiful human relationship between a father and a son can only be a shadow a mere hint at the beauty of the fellowship and the joy and the love and the bond of relationship shared between God the Father and God the Son. How, how could he give his only son? Why would he pay so high a price? What could possibly have motivated him to do so? So the answer lies in God's very nature specifically in two of his perfections that we have looked at um, in the study of God, namely his justice or his righteousness and his love. As an attribute of God, his justice or his righteousness means that he always does what is right. His holiness is the standard which defines right. And because he is just, because he always does what is right, he cannot look over sin. He can't sweep it under the rug because that is not what sin is deserves what sin deserves the penalty which God's holiness his righteousness demands is death Romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death sin is a grievous offense against the holiness of God and his justice demands that the debt incurred be paid but the good news of the gospel is that while God is a God of absolute justice. He is also a God of amazing love. And God's love is expressed in that he chose to pay our sin debt himself. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is some erroneous church doctrine out there which depicts God as being just generally angry with mankind and that Jesus has to convince him reluctantly to show us mercy. That God somehow loves and forgives us only because Jesus died for us. But this is actually reversal of the true nature of redemption that Jesus died for us because God loves his elect. Theologian John Murray writes, The atonement does not win or constrain the love of God. It must be regarded, therefore, as a settled datum that the love of God is the cause or the source of the atonement. So we must clarify as well that God's love, his salvific love that leads to salvation, is is an electing love. He was under no obligation or constraint to love us. There was nothing in us which merited his love. But of his own free and sovereign choice, he, sets, he set in eternity past 
his love on certain individuals and predestined, predestined them to receive salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. In him we were also chosen as God's own, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything by the counsel of his will. God chose to save because of who he is in his essence, because he is a God of justice and he is a God of love. It was his love that purposed to save his people from their sins, and it was his justice which ordained that their sins be paid for through the vicarious atoning death of his son. So why then, as we have looked at the needfulness of the atonement, the cause of the atonement, why then was it necessary? Was there no other way? Uh, so we've, we've already alluded to the fact that God was under no necessity to save us. He could have left us in our sins, meted out his just judgment on our guilt for all eternity in hell, and remained completely righteous in doing so. He could have chosen to save none, but in his infinite mercy from eternity past, God had purposed to save many, to reconcile a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself, and to do it, God the Son would have to die in their place. So theologians refer to this, this truth as the subsequent absolute necessity. That although God did not have to save any, once the decision was made to save some, there was no other way than by the atoning death of Christ. And as a proof text for this, there are many scriptures that, that speak to this truth, but as a proof text, uh, we could look at Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because we know that Jesus prays always according to the will of the Father. And he prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But the cup did not pass because it was not possible. God himself in the person of the Son must be born as a man, take upon himself our sins and pay their due penalty so that God could save us. Lastly, well, not lastly, we've actually got a lot more to go through. I don't know why I said that. Next, we're looking at the nature of the atoning work of Christ. Like a uh, multifaceted uh, jewel, that as you, as you turn it in the light, each unique face reflects the light's beauty in different ways. The atoning work of Christ has many different themes, many different aspects to it and ways to understand and, and give insight. Um, Within the atonement, we see this theme of substitutionary sacrifice that we've talked about. We see Jesus being the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We see the atonement as propitiation. Propitiation, a New Testament term meaning that the Father is made to be propitious or favorable towards us. Um, that Jesus' atoning work absorbs all of his just wrath and turns it towards us into favor. Uh, we see also the, the atonement uh, as redemption, that a ransom price is paid to the justice of the Father um, for our, our salvation out of sin. Um, but there are two of these themes that I want to look at more closely um, because they, they sort of unify all of the other, other themes. They're central to the gospel, and they're important that we understand and affirm. The first is that of Christ's obedience, the obedience of Christ um, is a central theme of the atonement, which 
which does unify other themes, his obedience was to the Father's plan of redemption and to his mission of atonement. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His mission was to carry out this charge that the Father had given to him. So there are two aspects to his obedience um, that are for us, that benefit uh, us uh, as his people that I want us to consider this morning. The first is his obedience for us by his sinless life, sometimes referred to as theologians by his active obedience. And the second is his obedience in his suffering, um, which uh, is sometimes called his passive obedience. So first we look at his, his life. Um, the scope of Christ's atonement really is not, ought not to be limited to the six hours that he spent on the cross. See, we're so used to thinking of Jesus' death as being connected with the atonement, but the reality is that every day of his life, every moment, every decision on this earth played an integral role in the work of atonement. Jesus came, as he said, to fulfill the law, the law that we had broken. And the law of God has two key aspects to it. The first is these prescribed commandments to be obeyed. And the second, the penalty for breaking those commandments. And fallen man has failed utterly in both points of God's law, for he cannot keep the commandments, and he cannot pay the penalty. So in order to be our Savior, Jesus both paid the penalty through his substitutionary death and kept the law by his sinless life so that his positive righteousness could be transferred to us through faith. So we need to get this. Through the atonement, not only does Jesus' death cancel our debt, but his life of righteousness is credited to us. We call this the doctrine of imputation. The process by which God transfers our guilt onto his son and imputes or transfers to us his positive righteousness. Paul explains this in Romans in chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, speaking of Adam and his guilt as representative for all the human race that was imputed to us, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus was made to be like us in every respect, yet without sin, Jesus, as the second Adam, could represent all who would believe and have his positive righteousness transferred, imputed to them. So many churches today would <clears throat> um, sorry, gotta, gotta step ahead. We're gonna back that up and go back to the page that I skipped. So this doctrine of imputation is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, his goal was to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
I think the church that often misses out on the richness of this truth by focusing only on Jesus' death on the cross as it relates to the atonement. But every act of obedience that Jesus did to fulfill all righteousness was to build up for us a credit of righteousness that could be ours through faith. He did not need to live a sinless life for himself. He had an eternity of sinlessness and perfect fellowship with the Father. He needed to live a sinless life so that he could be a sin substitute for us and so that his positive righteousness could be ours. Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17 reads, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So after looking at Jesus' obedience for us by his sinless life, the second aspect of his obedience is his suffering for us by his death on the cross. And before, I want, before we go any further, I want to, 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 to bring in this second um, fundamental theme of the atonement uh, that we must apply to, to understand its nature, and it is that of penal substitution. Um, uh, sometimes also referred to as, as the doctrine of vicarious atonement. And what this means is that Jesus suffered the penalty for the sins of his people as their substitute. And this concept, uh, as John MacArthur says, is the, is the rubric by which we are to understand Christ's work. It tells us what really was happening as Jesus bled and died on the cross. And it is here at this at this juncture at this doctrine that people tend to go wrong in seeking to understand the nature of the atonement, why Jesus died, and what his death truly accomplished. The incomplete uh, or, or outright incorrect theories abound around this, and many churches today, um, uh, even many within our own city, would, would reject outright the notion of Christ bearing the penalty uh, of our sins on the cross. How could a loving God do such a thing? Um, but those who teach this error, they do not know God. Their theology is like a, a bucket with the bottom drilled full of holes. It doesn't hold water. It's empty, falls completely apart because it fails to acknowledge along with God's love, his justice, and his holiness. But sound theology, correct understanding of the scriptures, correct understanding of the nature of the atonement reveal to us that the nature of the atonement is that of penal substitution. Christ paid our penalty as our sin substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he, speaking of the Father, has made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his systematic theology, John MacArthur writes, God in his love has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in the place of sinners, to bear their sin, their guilt, and punishment, and thereby satisfy God's wrath on their behalf. This is the doctrine uh, that we affirm of, of penal substitution being the nature of the atonement. Jesus suffered and died in our place. So in the time that we have left, I want to take some minutes to consider the suffering that the Lord Jesus bore for us in his work of atonement. Um, 
and the first, the first element of that suffering um, that we can look at is, is his physical pain, uh, the, the physical pain of his death on the cross. So death by crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of execution ever devised. Uh, the Romans were, were master torturers, and the cross was the product of centuries that they had spent um, in perfecting the most agonizing, agonizing of deaths. I'm going to, to read from an article that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association um, by Dr. William Edwards, which outlines from a, from a clinical perspective, from a physician's perspective, um, and a historical one, what the physical pain that Christ suffered on the cross <clears throat> would have been like. First, he, he goes into uh, the flogging, which was a, a part of the crucifixion. He says, flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. The usual instrument was a short whip um, with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. For scourging, uh, the man was stripped of his clothing, his hands tied to an upright post, the back, buttocks, and legs flogged either by two soldiers on either side or by one who alternated positions. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly would strike the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissue. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss would set the stage for circulatory shock. At the site of execution, by law, the victim is given a bitter drink of wine mixed with Myrrh, as a mild analgesic, the criminal would then be thrown to the ground on his back with his arms outstretched. Along the crossbeam, the hands would be nailed or tied to the crossbar. <clears throat> After both arms were fixed to the crossbar, the victim was lifted onto the stipes. Next, the feet were fixed to the cross, either by nails or by ropes. When the victim was thrown to his back in preparation for the transfixion of his hands, scourging wounds would be opened again and contaminated with dirt. Furthermore, with each respiration, the painful scourging wounds would scrape against the rough wood of the cross. Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows and adducting the shoulders. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. Lifting of the body would also painfully scrape the scourge back against the rough wooden stipes. Muscle cramps and paresthesias of the outstretched and uplifted arms would add to the discomfort of the victim. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. There's a lot more there. Um, and I would recommend the article to you. Uh, it's titled On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ by Dr. William Edwards. Um, but this pain, this suffering on the cross, 
was itself It paled in comparison with the suffering that he, he endured by bearing the weight of our sin. <clears throat> Far greater than the pain of the physical suffering was the pain of bearing the guilt of sin. We all of us have known the agony of sorrow over wearing the weight of our sins alone, but Jesus took on himself a burden of guilt beyond comprehension as God made him to be the sin-bearer for every sin of all who would someday be saved. The scriptures make it clear that it was God the Father who put our sins on Jesus Christ. We read in Isaiah, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of the Father. The Father placed our sins on the Son. Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now adding to the suffering of bearing this weight of sin, not only was Jesus the sin bearer, but he was deserted and abandoned by his followers and closest friends. And the scriptures tell us that at the moment in which Jesus became sin for us, at the moment that God reckoned our sins to be his, God the Father, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, looked away from the Son. He turned his back on the only begotten Son. And Jesus, in the hour of his greatest trial, was completely alone. Abandoned by his heavenly Father to face the weight of countless millions of sins alone. It was at this moment that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even greater than this was the suffering that Jesus bore in bearing the wrath of God. In his book, Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith, Wayne Grudem writes, As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. This aspect of the atonement, where Jesus absorbs the full venting of God's wrath against sin, is the doctrine of propitiation. This is a New Testament term that we have we've looked on already, but it means that the Father is made to be favorable towards us as all of his just and righteous wrath is absorbed by Christ in our place. Now, this doctrine has come under attack and continues to, uh, it seems, more and more. It's increasingly unpopular these days to say that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross, but it is absolutely imperative that we hold the line here and unequivocally affirm the propitiatory nature of the, the atonement. 
because it is at the heart of the gospel. We affirm this doctrine of penal substitution that Christ died in our place. Now, finally, uh, in closing, um, blessedly, we can consider the truth of the culmination of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, and that is that God did not leave him in the tomb. He is risen, and this fact of his resurrection is attested to in all four Gospels. Now, this is the climax of all Jesus' atoning work and the vindication of his righteousness. His resurrection is the ultimate emblem or seal of approval that God the Father was pleased by his labors, that the plan of redemption had been accomplished, and that his justice was satisfied. I want to read from Ephesians in chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there if you have your Bibles with you. This will be like the one, the one time I ask you to, to turn to a passage. begin reading in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And skip down um, to verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So all of our, all of our time and attention this morning we have spent in looking at, at the, the need for the atonement, the cause of the atonement, its necessity and its nature. Um, and we've had no time to get into um, the application of the atonement. Um, but I, I can't close this out this morning without sharing with you something which has encouraged my heart so much this week in, uh, in looking into this. Um, and that is uh, the confidence, the confidence and the joy that the knowledge of the atoning work of Christ uh, gives to us. See, the same lie uh, that, that Satan told at the very beginning in the garden um, if he could get Adam and Eve to believe that maybe God isn't good, that maybe God really doesn't love us or maybe he doesn't really have our best in mind. Um, <clears throat> if we look at Romans in chapter 8 and verse 32, that God spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all how should he not with him freely give us all things? Uh, I'm going to read a quote from John Flavel, and we'll, and we'll close. He says, How is it imaginable that God should withhold, after this, spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, 
protect and deliver them. Surely, if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered. Any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. All glory be to Christ, to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the work of atonement that he has brought about for us. Uh, you can, you're dismissed. <laughs>